so we're looking at this subject, it's a rather exciting subject about Emmanuel. But before we start thinking about this subject, what, what I'd like us to do is to think a little bit about Isaiah himself. Isaiah's name, I'm sure you know, is Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And he calls for Israel to have faith in Yahweh, their savior, that only he could save them. Now, now the book was written when Assyria was becoming a, a huge threat and Babylon was, was quickly growing in power. And so then it's no wonder, is it, that, that God's people were anxious about their future. What would become of the promises of God? And how would they survive? And this is so especially important for us, brothers and sisters, with the, the world in such turmoil, with COVID, with so many uncertainties, unpredictable stock markets, oil prices, the prospect of redundancies, colossal debt, rising immorality, crime, and sadly ecclesial problems. We are all being called to have faith in Yahweh, our Saviour. And like Babylon during the time of Isaiah, Russia is now looking like a big threat. That The Bible says that Gog will come down to take Israel. And today we are seeing Russia ready to defend Belarus and step in with its own forces. And if Russia takes Belarus, what would its next land grab be? Isaiah is going to receive a vision of the king of kings, one who is going to rule this world and bring about peace and righteousness. One who will end all the problems we are facing today and bring safety and security for everyone. And how much we long for this time, brothers and sisters. Now, Isaiah ministered in and about Jerusalem for about 50 years. He was married and he refers to his wife as the prophetess. That can be seen in chapter 8 and verse 3. Yet nowhere in the Bible is a wife called a prophetess because she is the husband of a prophet. Isaiah's wife must have been a prophetess in her own right. We also notice that Isaiah's sons also took on prophetic names. If you've not got your, open, your, your Bibles open, let's open up our Bibles now, please. And let, let's begin in Isaiah chapter 8. And, and, and let's just think a little bit about these children that Isaiah had. Isaiah chapter 8. And, and you see there, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a, a man's pen concerning Mahashalal Hashbaz. Verse 3, And I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then you go down to verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are signs and wonders for Israel. So these children were signs for Israel. Well, as we've got on the screen here, that the sons of Isaiah, that the first one was Sheer Jashub. And I think it's important that his name means a remnant will return. That's worth taking a note there. And the second one, which we've looked at in those two verses, Mahashalal Hashbaz, means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. In their very names were, were messages of hope and judgment for the nation of Israel. The people had a choice. If they were faithful and responded to God's word, then they had an assured hope. If they were unfaithful and ignored God's word, then they would face fierce judgment. So the outcome was based upon the decisions they personally made. It's like the broad and narrow way for us. We have a choice and the, the decision is down to us. It's a, an individual decision. One leads to hope while the other leads to judgment. Which path are you on? Which path am I on? Now, nowhere in the Bible do we have the details of Isaiah's death. However, a Sanhedrin script, it's called the Yerushami, records how the prophet hid for safety in a tree. But on the orders of King Manasseh, the tree was sawn in pieces with Isaiah in it. There is also a discovered Talmud, which records how King Manasseh sawed Isaiah in half with a saw, whilst a mocking crowd looked on. Maybe Isaiah 
is being thought of when the writer to the Hebrews concludes chapter 11 with these words. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were, were slain with the sword, of whom the world was unworthy. So then today we're going to look at the, the beautiful subject of Emmanuel. And we're going to try and understand what it's meant by this lovely name. What, what it means when we read of Emmanuel. But I want us to start in Isaiah chapter 1. So let's have a look at the beginning of the book here. Isaiah chapter 1. Let's just read um, this verse, and you see a whole list of kings here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, so from reading this verse, and as you read through the book of Isaiah, it becomes very clear that Isaiah was very well known by the kings of Judah. It seems like he knew them all very well personally. And so it's therefore been suggested, though we can't prove it, that his father Amos was the brother of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah. And if this was the case, then this would make Isaiah the first cousin of King Uzziah. And so then a very close relative to all these kings. Now, Isaiah was born when King Uzziah was on the throne. And I'm sure you know that Isaiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah, and he reigned for 52 years, so a long period there. Let's have a look at the bit of the, the background of King Uzziah. Let's have a look at uh, 2 Chronicles in chapter 26. 2 Chronicles in chapter 26, and we're just going to look... We're just going to look together... Um, on the life of this man, King Uzziah. So 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, a young man, and made him king in the room of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. 16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 2 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was also Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he saw God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So there's a little hint there that something was going to go wrong. Whilst he sought the Lord, Yahweh there, God would make him prosper. And, and, and here we read verse 16, but when he was strong, King Uzziah, his heart was lifted up. I want you to notice that phrase there, lifted up, we're going to see that in a moment, was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incest upon the altar of incense. So though Azariah, the high priest here, along with 80 other priests, they all opposed the king. Uzziah still entered the temple to burn incense on the altar. So God smote the king in the forehead with leprosy. He was thrown out of the temple and he remained a leper until the day of his death. He was cut off as an outcast. What a tragic end to this faithful king, brothers and sisters. But by reading that, and particularly that little phrase there, lifted up in verse 16, with that in your minds, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. We've, we've read a little bit on the background there of King Uzziah, which I feel is going to help us understand really this amazing vision in this chapter. So Isaiah chapter 6, and the prophet records that when he received this vision, it was during the, the death or the year of the death of King Uzziah that we just read off together in Chronicles. Isaiah 6 then verse 1, in the year, says the prophet, that King Uzziah died, I, the prophet, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So in the year the leper king died, Isaiah received this vision. And Isaiah was possibly standing in the temple, feeling rather downcast. It was a great king, and it was a, a moment of sadness that the king had died. But what Isaiah was about to see was a vision of the greatest king ever to be seated upon David's throne. So the first thing I want you to notice there is that we're introduced to this one who sat upon the throne. And, and the prophet says there that he is the Lord, notice there, 
it is the Lord sitting upon the throne. Now, if you don't know, the Hebrew there is Adonai. So it is the one who is described as Adonai sitting upon the throne. And the word Adonai simply means master. So it's a master, someone who has a relationship with Isaiah, which is interesting, isn't it? Of all the names and titles to be used there, God chooses that. And concerning the one sat upon the throne, who is the master there, it's interesting because we, we read at the end of verse 5 that the, that the identity of that person sat upon the throne is revealed. Notice this, for mine eyes have seen the king. So it's the king sat upon the throne, we would understand that. The Lord of hosts Yahweh of armies. So Yahweh is the king in glory. Yet he is the Adonai, he is the master recorded there in Isaiah 6 and verse 1. Now, how would we understand this? Well, with everything, brothers and sisters, we always use scripture to interpret itself. So come with me to John chapter 12. And if you've not seen this reference before, it's worth jotting this one in your margin because it's incredibly helpful. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, and he's going to comment on Isaiah chapter 6. And he's going to explain what Isaiah saw. Well, as we, we make our way to that verse, I want you to notice all the wonderful connections that Isaiah, um, that Jesus makes with Isaiah here. Let, let's begin in, in, uh, in, in John chapter 12 and verse 37. So it says, but though Jesus had done so, miracles, so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, notice, the prophet, which might be fulfilled, which he spake, and you can look in your margin, this comes right from Isaiah 53. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah 53 verse 1 starts with that, doesn't it? Who hath the who hath believed our report, their, their well-known words. Then verse 39, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, so it's another reference here, he that he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now look in your margin, this is not Isaiah 53. We're now in the chapter that we've been looking at, that's Isaiah 6. I've got that marked out here in my Bible, just to draw my attention to that. Now Jesus is quoting in the very chapter, from the very chapter that we've been looking at, Isaiah chapter 6. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Now notice, these things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, by Verse 41 there, I've got a, a marginal reference, which takes me to Isaiah 6, verse 1, where we read Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So in other words, then, Isaiah saw his glory. He saw Jesus's glory. That, that, that's the, the vision explained to us, brothers and sisters. He saw the glory of Christ. Yahweh, the king, sat upon the throne, was in fact, a vision of Christ in glory, which is rather interesting. But, but the people's eyes and hearts at the time of Isaiah were not open to this. Yet we can only interpret this vision, brothers and sisters, if we understand the subject of God manifestation. On the throne, we have a picture of God manifested in his son. And we all understand that phrase and that principle, but that's what is being revealed here. It is God revealed in his son. Now that's not surprising, isn't it? Because re remember the words of Gabriel to Mary, that they're very similar words to what we're reading here. Gabriel said to Mary concerning Jesus, he shall be great, and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So we can understand this being God manifested. There was Yahweh sat upon the throne, yet Gabriel makes it very clear to Mary that it is the promise of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sit upon the throne of his father David. However, we have seen from Isaiah 6, and that cross-reference there to John chapter 12, that it's a king sat upon the throne, but it's more than a king. Let's have a look in Isaiah chapter six, and let's just pick out a few little details here, because we also see a priest. I want you to notice the end of verse one there. It says, and his train filled the temple. His train, I've got in my margin here, the skirts thereof. And you may have in your margin a cross-reference 
to Exodus chapter 28, verses 33 and 34. And I'm sure you all know that that is a chapter that details the tabernacle and the clothing of Aaron. And that phrase, the skirts thereof, takes us to the hem. This was the border of the high priest's garment. And remember how the fringes were made in the borders of their garment. They were made in blue. Let me just read these words to you in Numbers 15 and verse 39, where we're told, it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. So that's the emphasis there concerning this skirt. It is the hem and the message that all the commandments of the Lord were to be remembered and they were to be done. So in other words, then, this one sat upon the throne always remembered God's commandments and did them. Isn't that beautiful? This is the, the point that's being stressed here. This is the one who fulfilled all that God commanded of him. He was the Lord. He was the word made flesh, John tells us elsewhere. But I, I don't know whether you notice as we were reading this together that there's no veil in this temple. Isaiah sees straight through to the most holy place. There's no veil separating the holy from the most holy place. It's been done away with. It's been torn from top to bottom. That the redemptive work of our Lord has been done. This is a picture beyond Calvary to a time when Christ is in glory. And the Lord, who is described here sitting on the throne, we've already um, highlighted that, that the, the description there is that he is high and lifted up. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that this contrasts, doesn't it, with the leper king, Uzziah. Can you remember whose heart was lifted up to his destruction? Can you remember that? That's 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. We've already looked there, and that's the same phrase. King Uzziah's heart was lifted up, yet this one sat on the throne was high and lifted up. Uzziah, though a faithful king, at this moment in time, his heart was proud. Where Jesus was always humble. He was a humble servant, wasn't he? And it was God who elevated him to glory. It wasn't himself, as King Uzziah did here, who elevated himself in glory. Well, with this in mind, I want you to have a look now at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, and if you've done any um, study in the book of Isaiah, I'm sure you'll know that we're in the section here of the servant prophecies. And what I want to do, I want to pick out again this little phrase that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 52 and verse 13, and it's used in a slightly different context. So verse 13 then of Isaiah 52, it says there, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So it's the words here, exalted and extolled. It's the same phrase, high and lifted up, that we've seen in Isaiah chapter 6. But here, it relates to a different situation. In Isaiah chapter 6, it related to one sat upon the throne. But here, it relates to God's servant. Not a man, a proud man like King Uzziah. And interestingly, if you've not noted this, this is an interesting point. This is the last time when we come to Isaiah 52 and verse 13, concerning the one who is exalted, and extolled. This is the last time in the whole book of Isaiah that we come across the word servant. It doesn't occur again in the whole book. And so then in this particular verse, we're being told that the work of God's servant is finished. And now he is elevated to glory. Isn't that lovely? And the last time we see this phrase here is Isaiah 57. So it appears three times in the book, if you've not seen that before. Helpful just to mark that down in your margins. And this relates, again, to something altogether different. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. There we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, says this one, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So what I want you to notice there, the high and lofty one, it's the very same phrase that we've seen in Isaiah in chapter 6, high and lifted up. But here it relates to someone altogether different because here it is describing God sat in the heavens. But it also, if you read that verse carefully, it is describing the Lord Jesus Christ who is sat 
with God in all, in all immortality, in that state of immortality. But it's further than that, isn't it? Because here, King Jesus is not alone. He, he, he's, he's not alone in this high and lifted up state, but he's with those who are of, notice, I quote, a contrite and humble spirit. So you've got God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who are high and lifted up, but here you've got those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. They are also with them. And so Isaiah is really stressing here that the humble will be elevated to this eternal position, not in heaven, of course, but this eternal position to be granted immortality, to reign over this earth. And it won't be those whose hearts are lifted up like Uzziah. It's those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. Isn't that a lovely contrast there? And this, of course, a powerful lesson here for us. The key takeaway is that if we're not going to be um, humble in this life and we want to um, seek great preeminence in this life then God's not going to elevate us in his kingdom he, he's not going to appoint us to be a ruler with Christ well we have to be servants now we're being encouraged that we need to be removing pride from our lives and, and seeking God's glory and not our own well, we need to realize that life is not all about us, but it's about Christ and helping our brothers and sisters to the kingdom. Our Lord's example, who even thought about his brethren when he was dying upon the cross, is the example that we are to follow. Thinking about us then, these who are described as humble and contrite in Isaiah 57. I want you just to think about those, the humble and the contrite, or the contrite and the humble. And I want you to come back to Isaiah chapter six with that in mind. Thinking about those who are humble and contrite in Isaiah 57, we, we return to this vision of Isaiah chapter six, and we've already seen that what Isaiah is recording here is the throne room of God. It's a glorious place. It's, it's simply awesome to look upon. And it would have taken Isaiah's breath away. Such was its beauty and its brilliance. And in this room, not only is there one who is the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, who is high and lifted up, but there are others. And the others are described here in verse 2. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and twain did he fly. So the one who sat upon the throne, who is high and lifted up, he's there with those who are described as the seraphim, the burning ones. So I want you to try and imagine that. One sat upon the throne who we've identified now as Christ, God manifested in his son in the coming kingdom, is surrounded by these glorious burning ones. And we've just looked at, haven't we, with, by, by looking at that phrase, high and lifted up, we have a little narrative of how the Lord Jesus Christ got there, how he arrived in Isaiah 6 verse 1. He, he led a life of servitude. And, and, and by living such a life, it was God who caused him to be high and lifted up. So, so by looking at those three references there, which uh, describe the one who's high and lifted up, we, we see the story, the narrative of how the one who sat upon the throne, high and lifted up, how he reached there, how he was able to fulfill that role. And it was a life of servitude, brothers and sisters. Well, we, we've identified and we've got the backstory, really, of the one sat upon the throne. Let's see whether we can find a similar backstory of the seraphim. Well, I think we can. I want you to come and have a look at Numbers chapter 21. Not a, an obvious reference to go to. You'll remember that this is Moses in the wilderness and how the fiery serpents, they, they built the children of Israel. And can you remember that a serpent was made of brass, it was placed upon a, uh, a pole, and those who looked upon that pole and the seraphim, if they looked in faith, they would be healed. That, that's the story. So the children of Israel, they'd sinned, uh, and so God responded by sending these, these fiery serpents. 
Verse 6 then of, of Numbers 21. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, now the reason why I've taken you there, that that phrase there, that the fiery serpents there, is the word seraphim in the Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? And, and the Israelites, as I've already mentioned, were to make a, a fiery serpent on a pole and look upon it in faith. And, and here is the description in verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now, you, now you know the story, but you might not appreciate there that the fiery serpent, the Hebrew there, is the word seraph. So we've got um, a, a name that speaks of a, a multitude, a number there. It's in the plural that the fiery serpents in verse six, which is the seraphim, which is the very same word that we read of in Isaiah 6 and verse 2. And here, the one upon the pole is this distinguished seraph of brass upon a pole that all had to look upon in faith and they would be healed. So we've got a seraph and the seraphim. Now, it would be impossible to interpret this if it hadn't been for the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. And you know these words, so let's just read them with me on the screen. And just remember where uh, we are in Numbers 21. And, and, and here Jesus comments on this scene and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, brothers and sisters, why that is so powerful in John chapter three? Well, when you look at verse eight of Numbers chapter 21, you can, you can just put a note in your margin because what we're being told here that the fiery serpent is a figure of Christ upon the cross, but it is also the seraph. So the seraph that was high and lifted up pointed forward to Christ. Now that's lovely, isn't it? And, and we notice that this seraph in verse eight was placed upon a pole. And the word pole, if you don't know this, is, is a fascinating word because it means simply a standard, an ensign. The, the seraph on the pole was lifted high as an ensign, a, a standard of God's salvation for all to see. Well, it's all become very clear now, hasn't it? Isn't that lovely how scripture interprets scripture? Isaiah chapter six now. And, and we understand why the term is in the plural, the seraphim. This represents Christ as the seraph and the saints in glory. And their joint work will be one of burning. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's just read the words again. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 2. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. And with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he defies. So it's very similar, isn't it, to the cherubim. But it's fiery. And think about what Paul says. Because, brothers and sisters, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and reveals himself to the world with the saints in glory, their joint work at the beginning will be one of burning. However uncomfortable we are with that, that is the truth. Paul says to the Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is the, the multitudinous Christ, when he's revealed to the world, it goes on to say, in flaming sword, taking vengeance of them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you've got the fiery seraphim with the seraph there in the coming kingdom of God. But, but there's something else we should think about, brothers and sisters, here. If you've got the seraph and we've got the backstory of the seraph, how he was high and lifted up at the end, but he was one of a servant in his life, then the seraphim have followed the same path as Christ. They were serpents, bearing human nature from the dust of the earth. But like Christ, who, who took his nature and impaled it on the stake, they are those who have done the very same. And this is what we've all been commanded to do, brothers and sisters. And so then, it's, a, it's an amazing picture. Those who surround Christ in glory here are those who similarly had human nature. And through the ultimate work of the great seraph, they too have overcome. This is the amazing picture that's being painted for us. 
Yes, Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, but he's also surrounded by, by those who reign with him in glory. And their backstory is so very clear. They have overcome. They too were servants, but in the kingdom, Christ causes them to be high and lifted up to reign with him. And that is the tremendous comfort, brothers and sisters, of the vision. Although it's a, a blazing picture of glory, it's also a very human picture too. And so, brothers and sisters, the world is tremendously uncertain. That There is a global pandemic going around the world that is causing men's hearts to fail them for fear. The sea and the waves are roaring. And wherever we look, there are problems. But with this picture in our minds, Christ, surrounded by men and women who have taken God's word and chosen a path of discipleship, who have made themselves servants, what could be more encouraging? What a, a glorious future Christ has in store for all of us if we are prepared to overcome the flesh. We, we, we covered a lot, didn't we, in our first talk, and um, it was good to have 15 minutes or so to reflect and to have a bit of a break. But, but I do believe that the subject of Emmanuel, God with us, is very much influenced by the vision we have just seen together in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, with Christ in glory and the saints, we saw the great seraph with the seraphim, the seraph who had been held up high for all to see. And in this great spectacle, we saw that there is strong emphasis on how human Christ was, who shared our nature. He was God manifested in the flesh. Now, having looked at the vision of the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we now want to move on to the prophecy of the Son of the Virgin. And, and we're going to have a look in Isaiah chapter 7. So let's have a, a look there. Isaiah chapter 7. And when we come to this chapter, we enter into the reign of King Ahaz. He was uh, not a good king. And you may know that he was the one who closed the doors of God's house and stopped all temple worship. So he was a very different king to Isaiah, his grandfather. So with this mind then, in Isaiah uh, chapter 7, we just read that together. I just want to read again verses 10 and 11. Moreover, the Lord spake unto this wicked king, King Ahaz, the grandson of King Uzziah, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. I, I will not ask. They're, they're quite resounding words, aren't they? Neither will I tempt the Lord. If we look at these words, there appears to be real piety in his response. It's like he's saying, how could I, just a king, a sinner, have to do something for me? But in reality, the king wasn't brave enough to ask for a sign because he didn't have the courage to take heed to what he would learn from God. And we can be like that, can't we, at times? We're so busy, aren't we, making lives for ourselves. And we want to pursue certain things. And we keep God out of the decisions. We, we prefer, at times, not to be directed by God. We, we simply don't want to hear what he has to say. Because it might not be convenient. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that situation. But Isaiah here is asking more than just merely a sign he's asking for a sign of his redemptive work and we're linking these passages here isaiah chapter 6 and these early verses here in isaiah chapter 7 as we make our way to emmanuel god with us that's the overall subject 
And Isaiah is asking King Ahaz, ask God for a sign of his redemptive work. That's what he's asking there. Uh, and this was the message of Isaiah all the way through, isn't it? it, it remember the name, his name, Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And so this is the, the message of the prophet. Ask for a sign that Yahweh is salvation, that Yahweh saves. That, that's the best way to understand that. Ask for a sign that Yahweh is salvation, that Yahweh saves. Ask for a sign of God's redemptive work. But the king would not ask. And the prophet was so angry with the king that we read these words. Verse 13. Hear ye now, O house of David. These words are, are rather emphatic, aren't they? Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. He was commanded to ask. He wouldn't ask, so now God is going to respond and give him a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the, the subject of today, isn't it? Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But you know, we, we don't often think, do we, that the context of such a beautiful prophecy is God's anger with an unrighteous king. And this is often true in our own lives, that, that real beauty can be seen in the ugliest of scenes. We, we all need to keep looking out for pictures of hope, of images of Yahweh's salvation, even in the grimmest and the, the most frustrating moments of our lives. If we have the eye of faith, we can see the promises of Christ coming, illuminating the darkness. Yet I wonder, did this prophecy have an immediate fulfillment? Perhaps an Emmanuel was born to Isaiah, such as Shia Jashub. His name, remember, a remnant will return. That's certainly a message of God's salvation, isn't it? Or, or maybe Emmanuel was actually Hezekiah, whose name is Yahweh is my strength. This great faithful king was, was only 25 years of age when he became king. And in the first month of his reign, remember, he was the one who opened the doors of the temple and repaired them. That the doors that Ahaz had closed. And Hezekiah's mother, Abayah, means Yahweh is my father or my father is Yah. Just as God would be Christ's father, this is implying that God will be the father of this son. Now, of course, not, not naturally, but symbolically. And the name Emmanuel is used again in, in the following chapter, in chapter 8, where we're told that Emmanuel will be in the land when the Assyrians came down. And we know this to be true at the time of Hezekiah. Shall we have a look at that? Isaiah chapter 8 and verses 7 and 8. And, and it gives us evidence here that in a first fulfillment, at least, that these words look towards Hezekiah. Isaiah 8, then in verse 7. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria is going to pour down and cover the land and all his glory. And he shall come up over his channels and go over all his banks. And he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. So it's metaphoric language here. He shall reach even to the neck and stretching out his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land. And the message is to who? Oh, Emmanuel. And that was the message to Hezekiah. We, we also read, don't we, in Isaiah 7 verse 14, that we just read together, that the virgin who was to conceive, it, that the phrase there is a virgin. And this is transliterated, the virgin. The virgin. And it's implying someone known certainly by God, and it would suggest by the writer here, that the word for virgin is the Hebrew, we've got it on the screen there, Alma, which means a, a young woman of marriageable age. Now, certainly Abiah, Hezekiah's mother, was very young when Hezekiah was born. So lots of connections there with Hezekiah, as we would expect in the book of Isaiah. But some hundred years hundreds of years later, in fact, 700 years later, 
It's an angel who picks up this prophecy, this, this prophecy of a man, manual, and, and relates it to the wonderful child to be born. Should, should we just go to those well-known verses? Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 1. We, we're going to pick up now how these words relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, where the angel here goes to Joseph. You can see that in verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Verse 20 then. But while Joseph thought on these things, behold, the, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and here we have it, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Whilst we're in Matthew chapter 1, it's worth just looking at the other reference. We're going to come back to Matthew chapter 1 in a moment, but I just want to show you something in Luke chapter 1. And if you've not noticed this, it's an interesting one to jot down. Because here in Luke chapter 1, we read of the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary concerning the son that she had conceived. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in Matthew chapter 1, the angel who appears to Joseph speaks openly here of Emmanuel, but it does appear that the name Emmanuel is omitted from Luke chapter 1, that Gabriel makes no mention of Emmanuel. Well, I just want to have a closer look at that. Verse 27 then of Luke chapter 1, and you can see that it's vir that's the angel Gabriel speaking to the Virgin Mary, to a virgin, verse 27, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph at the house of Mary, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel Gabriel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Verse 30, and the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the very vision of Isaiah chapter 6. But Gabriel mentions there that the name would be Jesus, and there's no mention of Emmanuel. Yet, if we carefully read these verses together, the end of verse 28, Hail thou art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee. I wonder how many of us have missed that, the Lord is with thee, because in that phrase is Emmanuel. So similarly here, you get the name Jesus and Emmanuel in Luke chapter 1, and with the angel that appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. So just come back to Matthew chapter 1. And, and the reason why I wanted to highlight that, they're like two bookends where, where the angels are informing both Joseph and Mary that his name was Jesus, that his name was Emmanuel. That there are two names that are being stressed here, the name Jesus that fulfills the virgin birth of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Well, the first name I want us to think about a little is the name Jesus. And of course, when you look at Matthew chapter 1 and the long genealogy there, you've, you've got the, the Jewish tradition of of recording family trees and in the vast majority it's consistent with tradition because it is recorded through men if you think about the the genealogies in the old testament they are all recorded through men and and here in the most part it follows suit but when we look carefully at this family tree you know that it breaks down in verse three with tamar in verse five with rahab and ruth and then Bathsheba in verse six is described as the wife of Urias. So two of these women were Gentiles that are recorded here in this genealogy, while Rahab, Bathsheba and Tamar all brought marks of humiliation and shame on the family line in different ways. So then this is an unusual family tree. And it's surprising, isn't it, that God chooses to record it in this way. Why does God choose to break with tradition here? Why didn't God overlook these indiscretions, these scandals, this shame 
and recorded differently. Well, why bring all this to the attention of the reader? Why paint Jesus's line in this light? And the angel here provides the answer because in verse 20, we're told there, or verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is why this genealogy is recorded, because Jesus would come from this genealogy, and this would impeccably qualify him to save people from their sins. The big message, brothers and sisters, here is Jesus was going to come from a human line, but would bring God's salvation. What, what an important message that is for us. So, so, so whatever sins and, and indiscretions we may have committed, this is why Emmanuel was sent, so that he could save us from our sins. And it needed such a, a special gift from God. And so however downcast we may be feeling about our pasts, remember there's nothing too big for God to forgive. He can forgive anything through the Lord Jesus Christ, as long as we seek repentance. What a, a wonderful and comforting message that is, by just simply looking at the genealogy. But, but there's something else I want to bring to your attention. I, I want you to, to notice there in verse 11, in this genealogy, you have a king recorded here. Josiah begat Jeconias, and you may have in your margin there, by Jeconias, Jeconiah. I want us to just think a little bit about this king, Jeconias or, or Jeconiah. If you know anything about this king, you'll know that he was a very wicked king of Judah who was taken prisoner by the king of Babylon. And I want you just to look at this cross-reference with me because it's very helpful and it illuminates really what uh, the Spirit is guiding us to think about here. Jeremiah chapter 22 from God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 22. And, and here we read of an incident. Something that happened in the life of King Jeconiah. He received a message from Jeremiah. And, and this um, bears huge significance, really, on what we're reading in Matthew chapter 1. Let's just read these words carefully then first to, to better understand and why I've taken you here. So, Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 24, and, and you read these words. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, notice, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck the thence. And I want you to go down to verse 28. Is this man Kaniah? A despised broken idol. Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And then look how emphatic this message is from, from God. Thus saith the Lord to this king, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper. That's an important statement is it for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of david and ruling anymore in Judah. so what i want you to notice first of all in verse 24 you've got the name kaniah and so then the je yah god's divine was removed from this king it should be jeconiah but the name yah the J there is stripped away. Now, now, if we know that the name Jeconiah is Yahweh will establish, then it all makes sense because God is, is telling us to the prophet here that no longer would God establish this king. No ancestors of Jeconiah could sit upon the throne. Yet we've just seen, haven't we, in, in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus was of the, the genealogy of the lineage of Jeconiah. Yet it tells us there, very clearly in verse 30, For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. No ancestors of Jeconiah could sit on the throne, yet we've got the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So I ask you, how could Jesus become king? God's solution was marvellous. Because I believe Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Joseph. The Luke record is the genealogy of Mary. 
And so how could Jesus become a king? God's solution was marvelous. A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. This is why Emmanuel was sent. Can you see that? Suppose Mary and Joseph had come together in a very natural way. In that case, their son couldn't ever sit upon the throne because he would have been under the curse line through Joseph. So, so God had to intervene in this fantastic way. And this is why we have the virgin birth. And this reminds all of us that God is always in control. Although the love of Joseph and Mary was genuine, their relationship blossoming, God was keeping track. God is always in control at every moment. He knows what we are thinking and what we're going to do next. So let's not second guess God, but give our lives to him in faith, knowing that he is shaping our lives for his kingdom. So having established that point, I want you to come back to the book of Isaiah now. And we're going to now look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And, and this Emmanuel prophecy is, is sandwiched, isn't it, between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 9. And, and we've seen one sat upon the throne in Isaiah 6. We've seen the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah 7. What are we going to find in Isaiah 9? And I think all of them have a bearing upon what we're looking at here with Emmanuel. Well, let's just read a few verses together. You, you know them well. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Um, I'm sure many of you can close your eyes and quote these words. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. Notice that word justice in your margin, certainly in the revised version, shall even be for burning. And we, we, we looked at that vision, didn't we, of Isaiah chapter 6 of the seraphim and the seraph, that the burning ones associated with, with, with the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to establish God's kingdom. From henceforth, even forever, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here we read that the child to be born, the child that was to come from the virgin birth of Isaiah 7 verse 14, would also bear other names. And the names are listed there, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And I want you just to think about those names in, in the chronological order that we have there. It starts off, doesn't it, with God being who he is, wonderful and counselor. And then we come to the mighty God. Many of you may know that that means the Eil Gabor. He is a warrior and he fights for his people. And then finally, the last of the names is the Prince of Peace and he will bring peace. So if you are looking at these titles now, what are these titles describing? These are titles, I would suggest, of God's revelation amongst men and how he will deliver and save. And that's not surprising, is it? Because that is the messenger, Isaiah, who name bears Yahweh is salvation. But, but the question we should ask, are these names in any way connected to the name Emmanuel? Yes, totally. I believe the prophet is showing us how the name Emmanuel would be fulfilled. It, it wouldn't merely be a theological or a, a doctrinal subject that God is with us. It would be real and tangible. Emmanuel, God with us, would be experienced in a mission, God's mission of salvation in his son. I hope you can all see that, that the name Emmanuel describes a process, a series of events. A mission. God with us. God with us would be first seen in the virgin birth. And then the temple in Jerusalem when, when Jesus was the age of 12. And then during his ministry and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ultimately in his return and the establishment of the kingdom. With this in mind then, I want you to think about the words that the angel said to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Joseph was not commanded to call the child Jesus, 
or any of these names that we read here in verse 6. Only Jesus. And given what we've just discussed together, you would think that it might be better for the angel to say to Joseph, thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But the angel didn't say that, did he? And when Isaiah wrote these words regarding the promised Messiah, God's people waited for Emmanuel to come. They waited for 700 long years. That they were waiting for someone to come with such a, a lofty and, and spectacular name. With, with such a significant and, and, and wonderful name would come such an extraordinary person. So they waited and waited and waited. And when the angel finally came to announce that Messiah would be born, Joseph was told that his name would be Jesus. Yet this name of Jesus wasn't high and lofty, was it? Jesus is the Greek of the name Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. A very popular name in Israel at this time. And if you think for a moment, there were two standout Joshuas in Israel's history. And everyone in Israel would know all about these two men. Think about it. These men who would carry the name of Jesus, but in the Hebrew, the name Joshua. There was Joshua the warrior and Joshua the high priest. The first Joshua, the son of Nun, he, he battled his way into the land, but he couldn't give God's people rest. And then there was Joshua the high priest who, who had his filthy garments removed but he couldn't take away sin forever. These two Joshuas failed in the mission of their names, Yah's salvation. They were unable to fulfill the names of Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But one day, another Joshua was to be born. Yet this Joshua would be different. He would be God's only begotten son. And the lofty and grand name of Emmanuel would become the name of Jesus. A well-known name amongst the nation of Israel. Remember the first vision, one who was high and lifted up. That the one who was sat upon the throne, the king of kings and lord of lords, was in effect the seraph. A man who had endured a, a mortal life in sinful flesh and overcome. And the same is true with the name. The one who was born of a virgin was given the name Jesus, Yah Salvation. It was a name taken from men. The name that he bore wasn't grand or spectacular, but his character was. And because of his unique mission that God gave him and his perfect obedience, he was able to say, I and my father are one. And he that has seen me has seen the father. This wonderful man, Jesus born in a lonely manger, became the full meaning and expression of Emmanuel. And now this name of Jesus is exalted above every name. Brothers and sisters, let's conclude together then in Philippians chapter 2, these well-known words, and we see how God shifted that name, just as he shifted the servant to the high and lifted up one. So similarly, God shifted the name of Jesus to Lord and Emmanuel. Philippians 2 then, from verse 6. Well, we'll read verse 5. A powerful reminder for all of us. Let this mind be in you, says Paul, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be in God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, the seraph, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the seraph upon the pole. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. These are words of Isaiah, brothers and sisters, and given him a name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. And what is that name of Jesus? Well, we're told in verse 11, 
that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is Emmanuel, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. And so, Jesus truly was and is Emmanuel with us. God with us. And God is with us today and every day through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, young people, let's keep going. With the vision of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords burning brightly in our minds. And let's never forget the invitation that we have all received to be his glorious seraphim.